we have suffered through four public address systems in this space since 1992. This one seems to be the best. Let us pray. Welcome to Rare Book School, March 2004 session. There are two public lectures in Rare Book School this week. On Thursday, Justin Howes, who is curator of the Printing Museum, well, the Monotype Printing Museum in London, will be speaking on the development of sans-serif type in the early 19th century, Typographical Monstrosities, is the title of his lecture. That will be in 201 Clements Library. Clements. Jefferson Hall. Jefferson oh, I'm Hall. sorry. I knew there was something wrong with that. It's in Jefferson Hall at 6 o'clock. That's diagonally opposite Alderman Library on McCormick. Very interesting historic old UVA space. Officer of the Virginia Historical System. Quick, the myth of the American historical ignoramus. It's a great pleasure to talk to Thank you, Terry. It is a pleasure to be back at the university and back in the rotunda. I must say, I've never been quite the subject of a uh, poster as the one I've seen. <laughs> Uh, might we say I'll be the butt of all jokes here? And I just hope I don't make an ass out of myself. If you've not seen the poster, you'll know what I mean. I'm, Terry didn't mention I'm here with the, the most important accomplishment of my life is meeting. Yes, this is not the first time I've given this talk, although the title is different. And, uh, but inevitably, when I, we go back tonight, go back to Richmond, Candy will say, well, you left out this part, and you didn't mention this part. And it reminds me, you may have heard of this, a professor, a scientist, this was several years ago, published a new book that was creating all kinds of interest in scientific circles and he was colleges or universities and give the same talk. He arrives in England and he's assigned a driver and he's there for three weeks. Well, about a week and a half into the tour, come to the next university town and the driver says, you know, sir, I've heard this professor, I've heard this talk so many times that I think I could give it myself. Sir said, hmm. They arrive in the next university town. They come in, they're greeted by graduate students and professors, and they go into the lecture hall. The professor sits in the back, and the driver, a la the professor, gets up in the front, and he gives the talk beautifully. He does not miss a <laughs> And a graduate student in the back of the room raises his hand and asks this very complex question. Or looks at him and just stares. And the professor in the back of the room says, oh no, I was blown it. And he said, sir, that is the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> it is so stupid, I'm going to get my driver in the back of the room to answer the question. <laughs> I've got to say this, I'm a great fan of Terry Bellinger. He, I met Terry almost 20 years ago when I was director of the Mercantile Library. And uh, three or four members of my staff at that time came to the Rare Book School, and then three or four members of our staff at the... Uh, Virginia Historical Society have come to the Rare Book School, and what a wonderful program you have here. I think one of the best things the University of Virginia did was to steal Terry from New York and Columbia University and bring him to Terry maybe changed the title of my talk. I have given it in other forms, Has America Lost Its National Memory? And what I want to talk about tonight is a certain perception that it is out there about the state of history in this country as it is today and where we want to look at it. Is the glass half empty? Is the glass half full? And then I want to give some speculations on where we're going with history in this country because by all of you, regardless of your background or what you do or what institution in some way or form or another in being involved in rare books, you're involved in the preservation of history. 
and it's such an important part of what we do. But when you think about it, in recent years, several influential commentators have said that we face a crisis of historical amnesia in this country. Let me share a few quotes with you. Lynn Cheney, the wife of the current vice president, declared that a refusal to remember the past is a primary characteristic of our nation. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David McCullough, a friend of mine, warned that we in our time are raising a new generation of Americans who, to an alarming degree, are historically illiterate. Lewis Harlan, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, when he was president of the American Historical Association, he now lives in Lexington, Virginia, he lamented that, quote, the present public ignorance of our cultural heritage has alarming implications for the future of our nation. Notice he said the present public ignorance of our cultural heritage. Now, this perceived crisis of history has been a strong rallying cry for reforms in education, particularly the teaching of history. It's been used to cite what is wrong with our nation. And I must confess that until a few years ago, I had many of the same sentiments, and I had a speech in my file that I don't give anymore in which I share many of these quotes. And I still decry the misuse and misunderstanding of history, but frankly, I've become more sanguine about the state of history in this country than I have in a long time. I won't read them again to you, but most of the quotes about historical ignorance are that it is a growing problem and that the American public is becoming less well-grounded in its knowledge of the past. Well, prove it. It assumes that previous generations of Americans were much more knowledgeable about our history than we are. It assumes that it was taught better in schools. Local information was more accessible and available to the public than it is today. It assumes that most Americans were fonts of information about the past, that you could stop an American citizen on the street and he could tell you all about the Compromise of 1850. That's maybe going <laughs> But let me ask, are those assumptions correct? Could it be possible that the American public was more knowledgeable about its history, the general American public, than today, than when only 50 years ago, more than 40% of the American population did not even have a high school degree. 1950 census, more than four school degree. Can we say that Americans had a better understanding of their past when many important aspects of history were all but ignored in textbooks and in classrooms and in museums and in previous generations? I don't know how many people of my generation, uh, Cammie, my wife, she had the basketball coach. <laughs> and this is nothing against coaches and teaching of history, but wasn't really taught that much better than it was in the past. Were Americans more attuned to history when they allowed important historical buildings and entire neighborhoods to be obliterated without giving any second thought to it? I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, McMinnville, Tennessee, in Warren County, and I remember as a child, Chancery Street, beautiful street, and with late, 20, uh, late 19th and early 20th century homes. The city fathers, in their infinite wisdom, and they were all fathers in those days, made the decision that they needed to widen Chancery Street to get out to the new strip mall on the edge of town. So Down King was giving, given to it at the time. You see, as a somewhat paradoxical place and problem problematic place in contemporary American culture. There's also an assumption that this 
perception of being concerned about historical amnesia is a new problem. Read uh, another quote to you. This is a Richmond newspaper article that declared the melancholy and ludicrous ignorance of our history prevails in society is an abomination. Date of that article, 1846. And what would you think if I told you that in a standardized test for high school seniors, only 30% of the students passed the immediate crisis of historical amnesia in this country? In other words, is half empty. In a way, reminds me of a Will Rogers story that you may have heard of. He was asked to write an article on the future of America for a newspaper, for a magazine. So he decided he would interview a number of people. And he stopped a man on the street in New York and said, Sir, which do you think is a greater threat to the future of America, ignorance or apathy? And after a long pause, the man said, <laughs> Well, we should know, we should care, but is it possible? Is it just possible that the glass is half full? American people value and support history to a far greater degree than is commonly thought. Because I think there's a flip side to the so-called history crisis, and there's strong evidence of an enormous interest in the past in this country. Most of the point, and I'll get to this later, that it's a good problem that we have. Take, for example, the, 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 uh, how prevalent history is in the media. Now, I will not say that television is the most ideal way of learning history, but in some ways it is still a vast wasteland, but there's more good history in that medium reaching a bigger audience than up in a small town in Tennessee. I grew up in the 1950s when television was new. They were all black and white. They received sometimes we could and sometimes we could. History on television in those days. Look at what we have available today. You take, for example, the American Experience, which comes on Monday, Monday nights on PBS. And it's treated a variety of important topics on our nation's history, done with sensitivity and based on solid research. There's a whole network devoted to history, the History Channel, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, some people call it the Hitler Channel because of its emphasis on World War II, but uh, there is a lot of history. There's a lot of history available on other cable channels, and occasionally you have some good history on commercial TV. And even though he has been the subject of criticism, and I know he spent some time here, Ken Burns has presented several historical documentaries that have stimulated remarkable public interest. His Civil War series, for example, which is more than 10 years old, was the highest rated program ever on PBS, and it rivaled the, the ratings that those evenings that showed of the major commercial networks. And for the following two years after the Civil War series, Sales of Civil War books soared, and visitation to Civil War museums and sites went up remarkably as well. He's had other series on Thomas Jefferson, on Lewis and Clark, baseball and jazz. They've had similar but less profound results. So television is an important medium for presenting history that has really not been available to the past. And with the explosion of cable television channels, it's even more so. That's another form of medium that history is being made more available than any other source in, than in the past, and that is the World Wide Web. It is now estimated that there are 10,000 websites alone devoted to history in this country. And through this development, history has become more accessible to more people worldwide than it ever has before. And we've invested heavily in our website at the Virginia Historical Society. I know the university has, and it has had a profound effect on our institution in the last 10 years. For example, we sometimes take this for granted. Our online catalog 
provides detailed information about what is in our collection to anyone in the world who wants access to what we have. I like to say someone sitting in an office in Beijing, China can, can click on the Virginia Historical Society and he can learn or she can learn exactly what we have in addition to the online catalog. <clears throat> it enables us to offer virtual tours of our museums and exhibitions. We send lesson plans to teachers throughout the Commonwealth and to an increasing number of teachers throughout the United States. And we even sell books and products through our museum shop. A third of our sales now in our, in our museum shop come on the web. It's an amazing um, new tool for presenting history. And the use of our website has soared. We now get about 600,000 visitors a year, which is many more than we have people coming in through the door. So you multiply, even you take that, put that, have that number or quarter it and multiply it by 10,000 websites out there. There are a lot of people in the United States and beyond the world that are learning history and enjoying history in a whole new form. There are other signs that the glass is half full with history. Thanks to the growth of the historic preservation movement and related legislation over the last 25 years, historic structures and neighborhoods have a degree of protection that simply did not exist in the past, certainly as it did when I grew up. Um, and because of tax credits, we have, we're seeing huge investments in uh, money and adaptive reuse of historic buildings. A good example of this is in Richmond. The old tobacco warehouse district down along the James River, those buildings were derelict for decades, well not decades, but for years. Now they're one of the prime places to live in terms of uh, condominiums and apartments. And uh, we simply don't destroy or raise buildings in neighborhoods like we, we did in the past. There, there's a greater appreciation for that. And here's a word that is sometimes a dirty word among those of us at historical societies and Latin libraries, and that's the G word, genealogy. <laughs> God love them. It's one of the fastest growing pastimes in America. Now, it was once the domain of people seeking admission to patriotic societies, but in the last several years it's become much more democratic, and I mean that with a small b, with people of all ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds seeking information on their roots. I never will forget about five or six years ago, there was a Harley-Davidson convention in Richmond, and we had thousands of bikers that came in from all over the country. And I would look down in my reading room, and I didn't see our typical patrons, people with beards and leather jackets and ponytails, and they dressed like they were going to a Harley-Davidson convention. Francis Pollard, our librarian, said she never will forget this big burly man with earrings and a, and a big, uh, big burly fellow with a beard was so excited when he had found out he was a, a descendant of the, the Cottas, the Carters of Virginia. And uh, he had, this was his connection with the past. But it is, it is a, a, a phenomenon that those of us in the library world have had to adjust. Uh, when I first came to the Virginia Historical Society, about 80% of our users were scholars. The numbers have actually gone up, but that percentage has dropped to something to like 50 or 60 percent because of that growth. But one of the best examples of how history is alive and well can be found in almost every community in the United States. And that is a phenomenon that we have seen in the United States, particularly over the last 25 years, and that is the explosion in the number of museums. Now, I don't know if you're my age, for example, if you think about the community that you grew up in, more than likely, within the past 25 or 30 years, a new museum of some sort has been created in your community, probably more than that, but it has been estimated 
that in the past 25 years, the number of museums in the United States has more than doubled. It's absolutely incredible. There's been an incredible proliferation of museums, uh, and it has led to a growing historically oriented tourism market. And obviously, if the number of museums, the number of history museums in this country is doubled, it shows me that there is a willingness on the part of the public to invest huge sums of money into it, and there must be an interest there. Now, I'm a member of the accreditations team of the American Association of Museums, and I've observed this phenomenon from on local and regional museums from Vermont to Virginia to Kansas to California, and there is a museum devoted to the history of almost anything you can think of. There's the history of the potato in Idaho Museum. There is the Museum of the History of Sex that you've read about in New York City. You name it, there is a museum devoted to it. That, that phenomenon has occurred in the last quarter of a century. It is now estimated that nearly 40% of all museums in the world are now in the United States. This has become very much a unique, um, this, uh, an American phenomenon. How do they do? Well, a surprising number of these history museums in America do a good job. They put a strong, they, there's a stronger emphasis on scholarship than there used to be. They're good professional standards. And there's a willingness to deal with subjects that were simply taboo in the past. I think of my own institution, the Virginia Historical Society, and I don't know how many of you are, have been to it, but the building we occupy is the old Battle Abbey of the Confederacy, which was a building that was erected in 1913 as a, as a museum and memorial to the Confederate soldier. We have the famous murals in there, the Four Seasons of the Confederacy. It is in, Part of our museum is very much a shrine to the Confederacy. Well, last month we opened a major exhibition titled The Civil Rights Movement in Virginia, which is marking the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. But that would have been unheard of even 25 or 30 years ago to, for an institution like the DHS to tackle a subject like that in some form or another. Also, when you think about it, museums, and I'll touch on this in a few minutes, have done a tremendous job of collecting and preserving our history building on the nation's, building up the, and preserving the nation's past. With the proliferation of museums, those things that have been in people's basements and attics have now gone into the museum, in, into the public domain, unlike any, anything we've ever seen before. Now, if you look at just simply the proliferation of museums, I think there's reason to be less pessimistic about the state of history. And I could cite some other reasons why I'm more upbeat about the state of history in this country, but I do have some concerns, legitimate concerns. I'm concerned about the misuse of history to justify political arguments or personal ends. I must confess I'm not a regular listener of radio talk shows, but there have been times I have tuned in and I've been very, very concerned about how people have used history to justify or to twist their arguments to fit their own beliefs. This was particularly true on both sides on the issue of the Confederate flag a few years ago. And although there's some very fine movies based on history, too often we see Hollywood manip manipulating the past in the name of artistic, artistic freedom. Uh, we're hearing to some degree this same story regarding the passion. I won't get it, I won't touch that one, but there's Oliver Stone's Conspiracy Lace, Lace Films, and then there's The Patriot, another Mel Gibson film, 
which was filled with egregious errors and gross distortions of the past. Historian David Hackett Fisher said the Patriot is the history of what Godzilla was to science. <laughs> I'm concerned about scores on the history standardized testing, and we could talk a long time about that. They tend to be low, but I have a feeling if those same tests were administered to my generation in high school, they wouldn't have been any better, and if anything, they probably would have been worse. But to me, the greatest concern of all that we have in history is not that people are becoming more ignorant or less appreciative of history, we have a good problem. There's almost maybe too much of a good thing. Now, as I said, the number of history museums have more than doubled in the last 25 years. There's been an explosion of history on the websites. There's increasing genealogy. The one thing that we're beginning to see, particularly at institutions like the Virginia Historical Society, and particularly institutions like Colonial Williamsburg, the numbers of people coming through the door are beginning to flatten out and go down. I don't know if you've been reading in your paper, Colonial Williamsburg has had three major layoffs in the last year. Three major layoffs. There's been a tendency to blame this on 911. There's been a tendency to blame it on the poor economy. But if you look at the numbers of Colonial Williamsburg and other institutions, those numbers actually began to flatten out before 9-1-1, and they began to flatten out and go down before the downturn in the economy. Obviously, something is happen happening. And some of my colleagues have said, well, we're, people are losing interest in history. And I say, I don't think that's the problem. I think maybe there is, there is such a plethora of options now in history that individual institutions, whether it's your own library, it's Colonial Williamsburg or the Virginia Historical Society or whatever, will have to expect that the way we reach and teach history may not be as much of, with people coming through the door. An interesting phenomenon that we've seen in some libraries at the Virginia Historical Society, once we put our catalog online, the number of on-site visitors has actually gone down. Fewer fishing expeditions, people can find out what they want by not having to actually visit the site. So there's a lot of competition within the history world and a lot of choices. And if I want to, I think of my own childhood, growing up in a small town in Tennessee, the nearest museum was 72 miles away. <coughs> now within 25 miles of my hometown, there are five museums. I received three television channels now in that county, whether through satellite or the cable, I, you can get history 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can do it on the website if, if you want to. So there are plenty of choices for history. There are also plenty of ways to fill one's free time. And I think this is something that no matter what profession you're in, we're all having to deal with this. And the paradigm of the history world is changing. There's a new book out by a psychologist, Barry Schwartz. It's raising a lot of eyes, and, and it's titled, you may have read about it, The Paradox of Choice why more is less. And his basic thesis is that we are Americans, are we have so many choices that for some strange odd reason we're not as happy as we were, we were in the past. We're bombarded with choices and we fled from one activity to another. And it's very difficult to sustain one's interest. I mean, we all do that. Those of you who watch television with all these cables, we're sitting there constantly flitting from one channel to another. So there's competition of all types. There's sports, the, the boom of sports in this country. 
Uh, you can get it on television 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the explosion of youth soccer leagues. Television, uh, not television, but we talk about, I mentioned movies. I, I grew up in this small town in Tennessee, one screen, one, one theater, one screen. Change movies about every two or three weeks. There is now a five-screen cinema in that hometown that is changing movies all the time. And how can institutions like history museums, which maybe will change exhibitions every six or seven months, how can they keep up with that? I don't have the answer to that, but we're going to have to change the paradigm and reach new ways of you know, figure out new ways of getting to people. But one thing that has affected us, and this is something that um, has affected our institution more than ever, this great interest in history that has been created and the higher visibility of historical institutions like the Virginia Historical Society has led to an explosion in collections coming through the door. This is something, frankly, we did not anticipate at the Virginia Historical Society. In 1988, we had a total of 5,000 visitors in one year. 5,000 visitors, and they were all coming to use the library at the Virginia Historical Society. We were not open for tours. We did not have a museum. We did not have educational programs. Uh, we've gotten up to around 81,000 visitors a year, something we're very pleased with. And we still run a very fine research library, but we have museum galleries open to the general public. We do a lot of school programs. And our membership has grown. One thing we did not anticipate, we frankly did not anticipate, was the explosion in the growth of our collections. Because as we became more visible to the public, and as people became more aware of what, by watching the Antiques Roadshow, which is another form of watching and learning about history, watching the History Channel, they became suddenly more historically conscious. And they began to think of their things that rather than throwing them away, they either start selling them or they start giving them to their local historical society and their, their museums. The Virginia Historical Society has been around since 1831. Our collections grew until 1992 or so at a certain pace. Our collections have grown another, manuscript collection alone has grown another 30% in the last 10 years. Our object collection, museum collection has doubled. And it is a good problem. And we're not talking about junk coming through the door. We're talking fabulous collections coming in. And I'm talking to my colleagues around the country this is a phenomenon, a good problem, a problem that we're going to have to come to grips with. And discussions of digitization, of preservation, become, they come in the forefront. All right, so that is an issue we're going to have to deal with. There's one other thing in looking at the future of history. There was an interesting study done a few years ago by two historians, David Thielen and Roy Rosenweig, called The Presence of the Past. And the presence of the past was an analysis of how and why people become interested in history. Some people do and some don't. Whenever I meet another professional historian, I always ask, how did you become interested in history? And for some, it was a great high school teacher. For some, it was a college professor. For some, in my case, it was a grandfather who told stories, and I just was fascinated by it. Why is it that people become history, but they were interested in history, but there were a number of interesting conclusions. And what they found is they interviewed about 3,000 people around the country, doctors, lawyers, plumbers, black, white, red, Asian Americans, a great cross-section of the American public. And they found that the majority of the people, the large majority of the people they interviewed, 
didn't care for history when they were young. These young people, they didn't like history. And there were several reasons cited for it. One, they had the coach, as the football, the football coach as the teacher, and it was so poorly taught that it was deadly. It was never interesting, unless they were fortunate and we got a good teacher. Two, most young people are looking to the, to the future. They don't have much of a history themselves, and they're, they're looking to the future. And therefore, they're not interested in, in the past. But when people turn 40 or 50 years old, grandfather dies, parent dies, and they begin to say, you know, I never, I, why didn't I ask him about his experience when he got his first job? Or they start cleaning out the grandfather's house and they find a box of letters, and all of a sudden they start connecting themselves with the history of the world around them and the, the nation and the community around them. And they found that time after time after time after time, people as they grow older become more interested in history. And it's something that we at historical societies have been beating ourselves up I mean, this is a nice young audience, but you come to a lecture at the Virginia Historical Society with three or four hundred people, it's mostly blue hair, white hair, or no hair. <laughs> and it used to bother me, but now I've had, I don't know how many people come up to me and say, you know, I hated it. I was an engineer. I hated history. It was terrible, but now I can't get enough of it. The demographics of the people watching history are older people. Now, I'm going to conclude with this. My generation, I was born in 1946. I'm the first wave of the baby boom. There's this huge bubble that's going to work its way through all kinds of cycles. It's going to bankrupt Social Security. <laughs> but what does it mean to those of us in the his biz, in the history business? Is it going to be a blessing or is it going to be a curse? It could be a great blessing because we have a whole wave of people as they grow older, they're going to become much more interested in history. How will that affect our institution? our institutions. How do we reach that audience? Do we do it the traditional way through collecting, or through lectures and exhibitions? Do we do it the traditional way or new ways like the internet? And how does it affect those of us who are in the business of preserving and collecting and preserving our past? Those of you in your institutions, if you are in the business of collecting history. It's going to be a huge challenge. I don't have any answers for that, that question. But I can tell you this, what you're learning here at the Rare Book School will be an invaluable uh, tool for many generations to come because I have a feeling that you're going to be very busy for the next two or three generations. Thank you very much. is an endowed lecture at Cambridge in England, well financed, but on necessarily on a subject so obscure that the audience for the annual well-funded lecture is tiny. On one occasion, indeed, it was so tiny that the audience consisted of one person, in addition to the chair of the closest department to the subject at hand who had the uneasy job of introducing the speaker. <laughs> But the speaker plunged ahead. He was, after all, well paid for this. But eventually he leaned over the podium and he asked his audience if it would mind if he trespassed on its time for a further 10 minutes. 
The audience said that he didn't mind at all. He was the cab driver <laughs> by the series to return him to the station at the end of the lecture. It's nice to see such a forest of uh, not entirely blue, white, or bald heads at this lecture. It's a great pleasure to listen to Mr. Bryan. I think you'll agree, and I hope you will continue the uh, discussion with him at the reception that follows immediately in the Alderman Library, first floor staff lounge. Thank mm -hmm. you.